Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for Liberal Arts for Southern New Hampshire University's online history programs. A few days ago, I posted our most recent conversation with Bob Irvine, and today I'm posting an encore episode of my original conversation with him, which aired way back on March 7th, 2017. We still didn't have a title for the series yet. The Between Two Bobs thing that we tried this time really wasn't sustainable when Bob wasn't there in the next episode, and my guest was named Jen. But gather around, everybody, and let's talk about some historical consulting. Hello, and welcome to Working in the Historical Profession, also known as Historians in Action, also today known as Between Two Bobs, or Between Two Robs, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I'm Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history program at Southern New Hampshire University. Today I'm talking to Bob Irvine, an instructor in the history program at SNHU and a consultant for a variety of projects and positions here we are going to talk about his background in history, we're going to talk about his job as a consultant, and we will talk about his advice for students looking to break into a variety of careers in history. So what is your name and what do you do? My name is Bob Irvine. Uh, in addition to my work here at uh, SNHU, I uh, am a vice president at a consulting firm called Park Resources. We do a variety of things, including uh, grant writing, uh, feasibility work, business planning, and uh, other analysis and, and research pieces. And uh, I also uh, teach um, one class a, a week at a local community college as well. It, that's great. And we will come back to talk about your consulting uh, job in a few minutes here. But uh, before we get to that, what is your academic and your professional background? Uh, my academic uh, background is uh, varied. My uh, bachelor's degree is in geology from uh, Whitman College, a little school in uh, Walla Walla, Washington. My master's degree is in business management from Willamette University, which is located in Salem, Oregon. And my PhD is in American history uh, from Kansas State University in Manhattan, Kansas. My, uh, my dissertation topic was the development of water law, uh, specifically in Kansas, but uh, also more generally in the uh, American West. It was very much an environmental history, which does provide a little bit of tie-in back to my geology degree and uh, my original academic base in the sciences. What was the time frame for your dissertation for the water law? Um, I focused on uh, Kansas was one of the last of the western states to change their water law, make it align with other western states, which is a different doctrine than you find in, in the east and in the midwest. So the, the water law changed in 1944, so most of my research was about Kansas up until uh, the law change, and then with some examination of what happened after that uh, doctrine of prior appropriation was implemented, so mostly in the 20th century. It sounds a lot like my uh, dissertation also. I was doing um, environmental regulations in California in the 19, uh, from the World War II up through the mid to late 1970s. And, of course, there's a whole lot of issues going on with water out there in California. <laughs> and so it's um, 
I was focusing more on the political implications and regulatory commissions and all of that, the intersection between environmentalism and political conservatism and all of that. And so I wasn't focused too much on like the, uh, the, the water laws and all of that. It was more on the politics of it. But um, yeah, with all of the um, canal building and the, uh, the, great, the big water projects out in California, it created a huge uh, issue for Californians in the mid 20th century. Oh, I had no idea you had that uh, that background. That's really interesting. I would have I would have uh, talked to you about that and asked questions. Yeah, it's hard to untangle uh, the law from controversy and uh, canal building, dam building, reclamation projects were, of course, of great interest to people in Kansas, and and that's why the the that project applies so nicely to the to the American West as a whole. Yeah, well, at some point we'll have you do the interview, and then you can <laughs> pick, pick all that stuff out of my brain. <clears throat> it sounds like this is probably still one of your uh, research interests, this uh, environmental regulations, or is, have, we, have we moved on to something else now? No, it's uh, it's something that I, I still have a, an interest in. Um, sometimes my day job allows me to uh, I don't know, explore um, and and uh, do research in that area. I have not written in that field for quite a while, but it's still something that uh, is. I, I do a lot of work for tribes, uh, environmental regulations, environmental law, uh, control of water rights, as, and especially as it applies to to fish populations here in the Northwest are are a really big deal. So I keep my I try to stay uh, as current as I can, but I'm I'm probably lagging more than I would like to. Aren't we all? <laughs> so it, how did you end up in, in this consulting business that you're in? Uh, a circuitous route, kind of like my academic um, background. My, uh, my wife uh, finished her Ph.D. before I did, and so she took a job out here in the Pacific Northwest in the eastern Oregon. And uh, when I finished, I followed her out here. I needed a job. I, I did some uh, sabbatical replacement, you know, working for to replace people, and they took sabbaticals, and I had written grants to support my my dissertation work, and I had worked for uh, my advisor on uh, an NEH project that uh, institute that was funded by the NEH, so I had that experience with uh, that, that grant writing as well, and so I offered my services to a, to a local nonprofit to write some grants, had success, and kept doing that, and eventually found my way to a, uh, a consulting firm that included that as one of its major activities. So, and that that makes a lot of sense. That it's kind of a circuitous route, especially for a position like consultant. Consultant is one of those positions that you hear about, but a lot of people don't really understand what that is. <laughs> uh, we always hear about you know consultings are going to consultants are going to come in and suddenly everyone loses their job or you know <laughs> something like that. That's obviously not the type of work you're in. But what what so what is I guess we could approach it as what does a day in your job look like that. What is the what is a what does a consultant actually do on a on a daily basis? Um, that's a that's a great question, and part of why I like consulting so much is that uh, I get to dive deeply into a, a variety of topics, but I get to leave before the institutional politics sort of become overwhelming. And and a lot of the work that that I do and that my firm does is 
with Indian tribes, uh, some with local governments and uh, nonprofits, especially rural governments. And really, what what we get used as are the um, the the people who can come in and do a specific job that, say, a tribe or a rural county needs done, but they don't need that capacity forever. They they just need it for this particular job. We're we're working in uh, Harney County, Oregon, for example, on the sage grouse uh, restoration and and some of the great, really interesting science that's being done down there. So so we get to dive deeply into the sage grouse, and we're there for six months, nine months, maybe more, maybe less, and then uh, then the project's done and, and we get to move on, and, and they don't need somebody writing regulations or writing grants or developing the range management plan. And some of it's just pure technical writing, um, and some of it's research and writing. But it's uh, it's fun to suddenly become an expert on, uh, I'll give you another example, uh, a, a, a tribe here in Oregon hired us to look at a variety of potential agricultural projects that they could use their uh, their land for. So I got to be an expert on Christmas trees for, for about three months, and Christmas tree farming, really fascinating. We looked at uh, stockyards. What uh, what are the economics of stockyards? What are the environmental consequences of stockyards? What are the costs of developing a stockyard? Uh, what sort of infrastructure does it require? So I got to be an expert on stockyards. And then uh, when that project was done, I uh, packed up that that information, that research, uh, stuck it in the corner, and and moved on to a different project. And so, are you generally producing written reports for? clients at the end of the process or is this just something where you're working kind of on a day-to-day type thing and then at the end of it you walk you the the client does it or is that on a case-by-case type situation more of the former but it is on a case-by-case basis oftentimes we're asked to answer a very specific question a tribe in washington recently asked us uh, should we build a grocery store on the reservation and uh, if we should build a, a grocery store on the reservation what are the what are the potential consequences and economics associated with the sale of alcohol at that store? Um, so we ultimately gave a, a presentation to the tribal council where we gave our answer to that question. And, and we said, yes, you should build a grocery store. Here's what we think your revenue would look like. Here's, here's what uh, a five-year financial pro forma would look like. Uh, we brought an architect in to help us lay out a store based on the standards in the industry. And, uh, and then we, we laid out the research that we, we developed on the question of alcohol, although we made no recommendation about that. That, of course, was a, uh, a political decision and uh, and not ours to to comment on, but we could give them information and uh, some data with which to, to help them make that decision. That sounds really cool. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah, um, yeah, that that's 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 really interesting. And so, you are. D- does this generally also involve a lot of travel? Are you generally doing this from your home office, or I imagine you probably have to move around a bit to to do all the, to answer all these questions. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, I, we have uh, people who are more uh, do more sales, or and, and that includes sort of well baby calls, but it does require some travel, and travel comes in in sort of fits and spurts. 
there are some months where I might travel uh, four days, five days in a month, uh, but I have not, uh, I've only traveled once so far for, for work this year. This is uh, the beginning of March, and that was uh, an over and back to, uh, to the Dalles. Um, so that there was no uh, no overnight travel there, but sometimes uh, just depends on the workload. Uh, I I will travel and, and I like to travel some, but I also have uh, uh, three kids at home. Uh, although one of them now can drive, so you know I I don't like to uh, don't like to leave my wife, who is also a working professional, sort of holding the bag as it were. Right, and. What do you see as the connections between a history degree and the type of work that you're doing? I, I knew you were going to ask me that question, Rob, and I am trying to think of a really sharp, uh, wise, <laughs> smart answer to that. I, I think that the discipline of history and the skills one develops Earning a master's or PhD are the skills that really translate more broadly and more widely than than maybe people think at at first blush. What what I do is a lot of research, a lot of synthesizing, a lot of analysis, um, and a lot of writing, and, and then communicating. And there's always, almost always, in the work that I do, there's eventually some oral presentation because. Um, it might surprise you, but even people who pay, you know, thousands of dollars for a written document don't always want to read it. Uh, so um, <laughs> that's why they have executive summaries. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. They they want they want the, the the thud factor to be there when it lands on the desk, but they also want um, they also want it boiled down, and they want to know what the therefore is. And I think that there's a really direct connection between history and, and the skills I learned in that discipline and, and the work I do now. I think the ability to think critically, to read closely, to research, um, to analyze, and to answer the question, therefore, what, is is pretty pretty important. Uh, it's pretty desirable, and it, and it really fits a lot more jobs and a lot more tasks um, that need to be done than, than people might recognize. That sounds right, and that's but that's one of the purposes of this this series of podcast interviews is that we want to demonstrate that a lot of the skills that students are learning in a history program, either undergrad or graduate, a lot of these skills are applicable to a whole range of careers outside of just teaching. We tend to have this vision that a history major is ultimately going to become a history teacher. And in some cases, that's true. But there are a whole lot of other opportunities available to people outside of just strictly teaching history. Um, oh. And that's for the best because, I mean, the, the, the market for history teachers, especially at the university and the college level, is very limited. Perhaps at the high school, that's not as limited. But there are limits, <laughs> and it's um, good that, that I think students hear about opportunities in other careers outside of teaching you know one of my my first job out of out of college was as a as a geological technician in a lab and uh, we the, the firm also had an environmental engineering section and they employed people with history degrees doing research because they're trying to figure out what different pieces of property had been used for um, and what the potential contamination might have been so you know, right, right there, uh, engineering firms are employing historians um, 
very very good friend of mine, a, a roommate in college, uh, has a master's degree in history, and is um, he's a database manager, and and he argues that uh, you know what he learned as a historian is is incredibly applicable to his his work. Again, the ability to think critically, to read, to analyze, and to communicate clearly is something that is in great demand. I think that people are a little reluctant to um, to take credit for that. As I used to say in, in Kansas, people tend to hide their light under a bushel and, and apologize sometimes. And I, and I don't think that that's, I don't think it's necessary or even appropriate. I agree. <laughs> I like the uh, the light under the bush. That's, that's a Kansas saying for you. <laughs> it is indeed. <laughs> so and that and that's great. I think that's I think that makes a lot of sense. And so, if we've got listeners out there, like say maybe me, who thinks what you do sounds really cool, what advice do you have for people that are, that think this might be a career worth pursuing? I knew you were going to ask me that question too, and. Um, again, I, I sort of followed a, a non-traditional path into this job. I think that there are, are more opportunities to take advantage of, of a history degree than, than people think. And I also think that it's worth going out there and reminding people. I think, I think nonprofits are a great potential place to land. Every nonprofit that we've ever worked with needs grant writers and, uh, the first job I took as a grant writer was was pretty much on spec. I said I'll write a few grants for you if you like what I'm doing and you and I get results, then you can hire me. And uh, and that was for a uh, a social service nonprofit that uh, provided uh, residential treatment to uh, at-risk uh, male adolescents. Something I knew absolutely nothing about, other than I had been a male adolescent once, and, and maybe still was to a degree, but it, that really didn't matter. I I could learn about what they did, and I could learn about what they needed, and I could figure out where potential sources of funding were, and, and put all of that together. Tribes hire people like me all the time. Uh, local governments hire people like me all the time. Once once people have a, a degree in in history. I think they just need to perhaps think more broadly than a job that has the word history in the title. I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think a lot of a lot of people make that mistake that when they go to do search for jobs, yeah, they'll just type history into a search engine, and of course, as we've just, as we've mentioned, outside of teaching history, there's not going to be a whole lot of job titles that have history in the title, but there are a lot of jobs out there that require the skills that we learn in a history program. So I think that's a lot of great advice. Okay, well, I think that about covers it. Thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure. And thank you all for joining us today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, Podbean, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, please send us a message at workinghistorians at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at workinghistorians and on Twitter at workhistorians. For Bob Irvine, I'm Rob Denning. Take care of yourselves and each other.